Well, if I tell you this morning that we're going to talk about prayer, I suspect there are different kinds of reactions. Probably one of three kinds of reactions. If we're going to talk about prayer, there's at least a few of you who are thinking, oh, good. Well, I want to be more like you. I'm probably not that in, in your category. So I, I'm praising God that there are probably some of you here this morning that think, awesome, we're going to talk about prayer. Because you probably are somebody who is maybe what somebody might call a prayer warrior. You, you pray often. It's something you love to do. It's something that's vital in your life. And you get excited. You think, oh, a sermon about prayer. I'm going to be affirmed and encouraged. And so there's probably at least a few of you who are like that. Hopefully more than a few, but hopefully at least a few of you who are like that. Others of you, I suspect, when you hear me say, today we're going to talk about prayer. There are some of you here this morning who are probably uh, hearing that, and your response is suspicion. You're a, you're a good discernment kind of person, and you think, oh no, what has the pastor been reading? Oh no, somebody's, you know, uh, given him some new book on prayer that's, you know, uh, published by a Christian publisher, but it's actually some sort of mysticism. It's more like Gnosticism than Christianity. And if you're thinking that, you're that kind of person that goes, I'm suspicious. I don't blame you at all. Uh, I don't blame you at all because there's so much that goes uh, as Christian uh, under the label of Christian. Uh, and we, in our, our, world that we live in right now, it's super trendy to offer Christians gimmicks, uh, prayer gimmicks, and we're buying up those books like crazy. And so if you're sitting there kind of nervous thinking, oh no, he read Jesus Calling, or oh no, he read this, or oh no, he read that, and he's going to give us something that's not even, not even Christian, I don't blame you at all. But you can, you can relax, okay? Um, more than likely... Many of you, I'll put myself in this category, when I hear, oh, we're going to talk about prayer today, think, oh no, I feel guilt when I hear we're going to talk about prayer. Because I know the Bible says pray without ceasing, First Thessalonians chapter 5. And I know I'm so st supposed to pray, and, and I don't pray the way I'm supposed to. And, and I feel guilty about it, and maybe you're excited about that, because if I give you more guilt, you'll feel so guilty that maybe something will change. So maybe you guilty people are feeling happy too in sort of a twisted, weird kind of way. I don't know. I might be in that category. Just give me more guilt, so eventually maybe I won't feel so guilty. I don't know. It's confusing. And maybe you're feeling something else. I, I'm, I'm not sure. But many of us feel guilty about prayer because we know we're supposed to do it and we know we don't do it the way we're supposed to do it and as often as we would think would be right. And I just want to encourage you this morning that I think we're going to get some relief. We are supposed to pray. It is a spiritual discipline. Many, many great uh, godly men and godly women who've gone before us make us feel guilty too because they've been such great prayer, prayer warriors. Don't buy their books. It just makes you feel worse. No, Maybe you should. Maybe it'll inspire you. But I think we're going to get some relief today and we're going to get prayer relief from, you might guess, Jesus. Okay, We're going to get some prayer relief from Jesus because of Jesus praying and because of Jesus' instruction in prayer. So if you're going to take notes today, it's a simple two-point outline. Uh, prayer relief through Jesus praying. 
in prayer relief through Jesus instruction in prayer and we're in the gospel according to Luke the 11th chapter so if you want to turn to Luke 11 gospel according to Luke the 11th chapter we're looking at what typically we call the Lord's Prayer but this is uh, this is Luke's um, record of it um, we don't call uh, people who've really thought about these things say well it's not really the Lord's Prayer uh, I'm okay calling it that. If you call it that, I'm not going to correct you. Don't correct me, please. Um, but somebody's really, people are on to something when they say, this is not the Lord's Prayer. And it's most certainly not the Lord's Prayer. I, I'll go on record and I'll go out on a limb and say, Jesus Christ never prayed this prayer. I know that he never prayed this prayer. You can know that he never prayed this prayer. And so John 17, we know he prayed, and that's Jesus' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We know Jesus didn't pray this prayer because... In this prayer, when he teaches us how to pray, we say, forgive us our sins. And Jesus never sinned once in his life. But because of what he's done for us, we have forgiveness, and so he teaches us to pray and to ask forgiveness. We also know something else about this prayer before we jump in. We, we know, and we don't know this for sure, but it seems as if he gave this instruction more than once. In the Sermon on the Mount, he gives, in Matthew chapter 6, we read from it earlier, he gives us the quote-unquote Lord's Prayer. And then on another occasion, this seems to be a different occasion, he's asked by disciples, Lord, how should we pray? Teach us to pray. And he says essentially the same thing. Because essentially this is how Christians are supposed to pray. So it makes sense he would say essentially the same thing. He gives the same kind of outline. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and begin by looking uh, at this first source of relief, prayer relief, if you will, prayer relief in Jesus praying. And if you look with me at Luke 11.1, 1, you'll hear these words. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples, one of his followers, said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. How is that relief? How is that relief? It's common if you have disciples like John did, to, you would instruct because that's the nature of discipleship. And so John's disciples, they have a way of praying and Jesus, we're your disciples, so teach us how to pray. How is that relief? I think it's relief for you and relief for me to see what the catalyst was for their wanting to pray. There certainly is a certain road we need to go down, the First Thessalonians 5 road, pray. You need to pray. It's a spiritual discipline to pray. That, that's a legitimate road. God gives us that directive. This is a different road that I think we also need to notice that we oftentimes think is not even there. We don't even notice. And that is the, the, the inspiration to pray, the desire to pray, not coming here through a command, but here they want to pray. It is elicited, it, it, it's drawn out that desire. How? Because they see Jesus pray. And that's a road I need to realize is there. And more than likely, if you're at all like me, you need to realize that it's there too. What a great way to be moved to prayer, not just by demand directive, but by observation. By now, they've seen Jesus pray on multiple occasions. Throughout Luke's Gospel account, we've seen it time and time again. Chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 10. They're going to see it again and again and again. 
But here they, they see Jesus praying and there's something amazing and real and personal and it's not just some sort of formality and you go through this and they say, teach us how to do that. That it is personal, that it is passionate, that he's, he's communing. I'm going I'm to use that word as a catch-all word. He's, he, has, he has real live communion, this, this personal Passionate, real, lively relationship with his father. And that causes observers to say, teach us, help us. I don't know about you, but I find this tremendously refreshing, as you can tell. If you need some motivation in praying... Look to Christ. Look to Jesus. What a great thing that is. To see that it's not just something empty. By now they know that it's not empty. They've observed. They've watched. They've seen. At least here on this occasion, they themselves aren't sleeping. They've seen it happen. You want some encouragement in prayer? Watch Jesus pray. Not so that you say, oh, I'm not near as good at it as him, he is. Well, of course you're not. But there's something about the genuineness. He's not, he's not playing a trick on them saying, you need to pray and it actually is meaningless. They know by now that it's real, it's genuine. They've witnessed it and they're witnessing it here. And they say, we want that. I would encourage you as a follower of Jesus to get motivated for prayer by looking at Jesus praying. Be inspired by Jesus in prayer. I liked it in these words. May God help our duty in prayer to be the result of delight in Christ. Duty is real. We're, we're called to pray. But may it come out of delighting in Christ and even observing His devotion. It's a, it's a good road that we need to be aware of. And you know what? There's something that we know that they didn't even know about Jesus' prayer that should solicit a desire to pray ourselves. And that's the fact that after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that He forever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus' prayer life now, if you will, and communicating to the Father is claiming us as His own. You know what? There's something about that that says, well, that, that, that makes me want to respond. That makes me want to pray. Think about it. Uh, let's think about it in these terms. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And so Satan can go before the throne of God and say, look at Pat Abendroth sinning again. And he'll be right. His accusation against me is a right accusation. I'm not loving God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm certainly not loving my neighbor as myself. And Satan can say, he is unworthy. And he can say it about you too. And Satan is right. Even a stop clock is right twice a day. Satan is telling the truth. Even though he's the father of lies, when he says Pat's a sinner, he's telling the truth. And Jesus, who always lives to make intercession for us, 
claims us as His own, spotless by the blood of the Lamb. Atonement's been made. Reconciliation has been secured. And Jesus always lives to make intercession for believers. I don't know about you, but when, when I think about that, and I, I meditate on that reality in, in Hebrews chapter 7, it makes me want to do what? It makes me want to say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Praise you that you claim me as your own, even though I'm not worthy to be claimed. I'm guilty, but, but based upon what you do. See, I'm praying. I'm inspired to pray by Jesus praying. There's relief from the guilt. There's tremendous relief from the guilt, and it's, it's high time, at least in my life, maybe it's true for you too, that my, my duty really gets, gets driven by my delight in Christ. Well, with that in mind, let's move on to the more traditional side of things, the way we would normally think in terms of the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Number two, for an outline, prayer relief through Jesus' guidance in prayer. Prayer relief through Jesus' guidance in prayer. We're going to see some striking features that come from Jesus that guide us in prayer that hopefully provide us some relief. And beginning with the fact that that this first feature is prayer is saying. Prayer is saying, we see it in verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say. Just for now, I want to stop there. When you pray, say. That's a striking feature. I realize it's super obvious, but maybe we need the super obvious. When you pray, say. What? That's what prayer is? Yeah, there it is. Prayer is saying. And most everyone in this room knows this. Many of you know that. That's just a traditional Christian definition for prayer. Prayer is talking to God. Prayer is talking. And so I'm just reminding you of the obvious. It's a striking feature. Jesus takes His disciples. Let me teach you how to pray. And the first thing you need to know is, say. Prayer is talking to God. Why am I making a big deal out of that? Why am I belaboring the point? Why am I making it a specific point to be emphasized? Well, because we've kind of lost sight of that. Prayer is not listening to the voice of God. That's not a traditional definition of prayer. You know why it's not a traditional definition of prayer? Because that's not what Jesus said. But right now, we, we like the novel, we like the new, we like the non-traditional. We like what looks a, more, a lot more like a religion called Gnosticism than we do the religion called Christianity. And I'm just calling you back to Christianity as Christians. Prayer is talking to God. Prayer is saying things to God. And we need to remember that. We need to be traditional in the sense that it's being Biblical. I'm so thankful that as a new Christian, somebody was smart enough to say, Pat, when you pray, pray with an open Bible. I'm thankful they said that. I'm thankful they said that because God has spoken. And God's spoken in His Word, and He claims that His Word is sufficient. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, that we don't need more. And so I needed to pray with an open Bible because I didn't have a clue about what it said about almost anything. Now, thankfully, as we meditate on God's Word and as the Scripture says, we hide it in our hearts and we start thinking more biblically. I mean, hopefully our Bible's still open when we're praying, even if it's not literally open. 
And God leads us and God guides us and He uses His Spirit to do these things. But it would be sub-Christian, oh, I'm going to be controversial, sub-Christian for us to say prayer is listening to God. Prayer is not listening to God. Prayer is talking to God. And God has spoken and He's claimed that His speech has been recorded by the power of the Spirit and it's a sufficient word. Read 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And so when you came here today, you came to Omaha Bible Church. We're a Christian church. We're not a Gnostic religion. And so I'm trying to give you Christianity in a traditional sense and saying, you know what? Prayer is when you say to God, And oh yes, you listen with an open Bible because we're not asking for new revelation because now we're looking for secrets which divides the haves and the have-nots which is called Gnosticism. And so I want to remind you of this great reality. Jesus says, when you pray, say. And God's will isn't hidden. If I could just listen harder, listen better, and I, I talk, why doesn't God talk to me? You got a Bible? Say to God, knowing that He hears. He most certainly hears. That's an extraordinary reality in all of this, to think that we could just talk to God, and He hears us. It's extraordinary. And to know that He speaks, too, and He has spoken. And so we talk to God and know that He's already spoken to us definitively, even as Hebrews chapter 1 says. And it's personal. We can personally talk to God and we're going to get to that now. Let's move on to another striking feature. The Father feature, if you will. The one who we address. This is extraordinary where we read Jesus saying, when you pray in verse 2, say, Father. When you pray, say, Father. Jesus says this again and again and again and again and again when we see His praying. And please make sure you see that the reason He can say to us that we can do what He does and say, Father, and it's so easy, the reason He can say that is because there was at least a time, one time, when Jesus couldn't say, Father. Think with me about this. Don't let me lose you. Because of the time when he couldn't say Father, you now freely can say Father. And you say, what are you talking about? I'll say it again. Because of the one time when Jesus couldn't say Father, you now and I now, for believers in Christ, can freely anytime say Father. Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is on the cross and he says from the cross, you know the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's that one striking time he doesn't say, Father. He's standing in that place, in, in, in that place where, where he's standing before his, his Father as judge. The condemning judge, because he's standing in our place. And he is judging his Son as if he were the rebel that we are. How about so that we can then, if we're in Him, united to Him by faith, anytime freely do what He did all the other times and say, Father. It's awesome. 
And you just see how this is so easy. Jesus says, okay, let me tell you how to pray. When you pray, say, Father. How easy is that? I can just say it any time. In intimacy, like I would my own dad. Dad, I have a need. Dad, I need you to defend me. Dad, I need you to protect me. Dad, I need you to provide for me. Dad, I... Father, Father... We can do that. You can do that. You just go to God. You go with boldness. Because Jesus atoned for your sins. Jesus was in that place to bring you into a right relationship with God so that you could then talk to Him as freely as Jesus Himself ordinarily talked to Him. And we can talk about this on other levels too, that Jesus is our elder brother, firstborn from the dead, and we're adopted. Romans chapter 8, and we have the spirit of adoption, so we cry out, Abba, Father. It's because we're in the family. It's awesome. So find some relief. Find some encouragement. You, just realize, you, you can just talk to God freely, speaking to God freely, just like Jesus did. It's amazing. It's not ordinary. It's special. Another striking feature if we work our way through this is that statement, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, how many of you use hallowed in normal conversation? I never do, except at Halloween time, right? And we talked about uh, all hallows eve, okay? We talk about spooky hallows. We say holy, as some of your translations say. I say holy so often that I'm kind of glad the ESV used hallowed. I kind of am not glad because it's English we don't use, and why don't they use English that we use, and holy would be better. But I kind of like it because it's not normal, and therefore even the word hallowed is kind of hallowed. Because hallowed or holy means unique, Different, distinct, out of the ordinary. And so maybe I kind of like that spooky hallows idea. Where you go where things aren't normal. You go where things aren't ordinary. You go where things aren't comfortable. Hallowed. Well, guess what? We pray hallowed be your name, holy be your name. It's a word that would have been used even in, 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 the, in the temple for ordinary instruments, ordinary, ordinary, ordinary speech, ordinary things that were used for the extraordinary, and so they were holy things. You get out your special dishes for Thanksgiving. You have your hallowed dishes, your special dishes, not the ordinary stuff. Okay, that's the idea. God, hallowed be your name. And oh, by the way, I realize we have to kind of dig in a little bit here, but bear with me. It'll be worth it. Your name? Well, yeah, because your name in an Old Testament biblical sense and New Testament as well is representative of, of, of who you are, your character, taking into account your attributes. Uh, think about Romans chapter 10. This is a familiar one to many Christians. Uh, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
What does that mean? It means all who call upon the Lord. But we say all who call upon the name of the Lord because we're not just talking about an ordinary human being. We're not just talking about anybody. We're talking about the one who is powerful to save. The one who is willing to save. The one who is gracious. The one who is merciful. The one who is kind. So we call upon His name, who He is, because that's the one who can save. And so here we go back to our passage and we say, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your character. Hallowed be who you are. But it still doesn't make sense to us. Because what in the world is that getting at in prayer? Okay, disciples, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your character. Hallowed be your person. It doesn't make sense because it's already true. Think about that. It's already true. God God is holy. By nature, He's holy. By nature, He's hallowed. I mean, he is. Read Leviticus. Read First Peter. I mean, God, God in his, his very character, in His very essence, is holy. So here we're praying, God, be your character. Or something weird like that. What? It's no wonder we don't know what these things mean. Well, we're going the long way around so we can understand them, so they can be meaningful to us in prayer. For you or for me to say, Father, hallowed be your name is very practical. Because we're talking about God making himself known to us. We're talking about God making his character, who he is. Known among us, in our lives, in our presence. God showing Himself to be the God who He is. And now we're getting super practical. Let me help you if you need some help. For us to say, God, hallowed be Your name. Make Yourself known among us. Show Your holiness that You're different from all the other gods of our imaginations. You're different from all the gods of the nations who have no power. They're dead. Make yourself known because you, God, are gracious. You, God, are patient. You, God, are merciful. You, God, are a God who loves the unlovely. God, hallowed be your name. And now let's go practical a little bit further. For those of you who are married, we'll get to everybody else in a moment, but this is a practical one. If you pray, God, hallowed be your name, and let's apply it to marriage. That looks pretty practical because if I want God's character, God's ways to be on display for Him to be making Himself known in that relationship, then I need to love my spouse even if she doesn't act lovely. Because that's how God loves us. Because that's how God loves. God's name, His character, His his attributes are on display. That's a practical way to pray. God, hallowed be Your name. If you're a student, are you going to be honest with the exam that you take? You're going to have integrity and be truthful as God is truthful. Hallowed be your name in my 
academics. If you're a young person and you're supposed to honor your mother and father, which you are, even if they may not be acting as honorably as they should, that's a real life practical way of that prayer being answered and reason why you'd want to pray, God, in my life as a young person, hallowed be your name. Put your character on display in my life. Put your character on display in, my, in, in our midst. Now it's starting to make, hopefully, at least a little bit more sense. God is already, already hallowed. This is a request for Him to reveal Himself in all different ways. We could ask it more generally in the world around us. God, hallowed be Your name. I want people to speak truthfully about You, not errantly. God, at Omaha Bible Church, hallowed be your name. May we not treat you as if you're manageable, because you're not, because you are the creator, sovereign, who is above us and is beyond us. God, hallowed be your name. May, may we have this good and right fear of you. I love it. I love the word hallowed because it's not in my ordinary vocabulary. It's how I've been praying lately. I've been using that older English. And you know what? There's not, it's not bad to think hallowed. I think Halloween. I think spooky. I think kind of out there and weird and mysterious. You know what? Maybe you're on to something. There's a reason why we say Halloween. It's beyond our control. Ooh. We don't need to be terrified of God. That's not the idea. But he's beyond us. We can't control him. I hope you can pray today. God, hallowed be your name. And the way that I think, the things that I see, the way that I speak, God, hallowed be your name going to travel, you know, Christmas time. It's the best of times and the worst of times for many people. God, as I'm there at my brother-in-law's house or parent's house or wherever it might be, hallowed be your name. Put your character on display. So real, practical, helpful. Makes me excited about wanting to pray. I want to pray this all of the time. It's no wonder Jesus gave this as a general kind of prayer instruction. In my relationships, God, hallowed be your name. And we can unpack what that looks like, yes, in details and what that looks like, absolutely. But to understand it on this level is super helpful. Let's move on. Let's move to the, the next striking feature where we read in verse 2 also, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Oh, and let's put those together. Hallowed be your name. Next thing on the list, your kingdom come. I would suggest to you that the, that the climactic manifestation or demonstration of God hallowing His name, putting His character on display, will be that ultimate coming kingdom. If that's what's in view. And it seems like it is. God, I'm... As a believer, I'm, I'm longing for the day where you show for every eye to see. 
where there's no more injustice and everything is right and everything is put in, in order and everything is restored and everything is reconciled and, and, and there's perfection. That's in the kingdom. God's name will be hallowed then like it isn't now. Oh, your kingdom come. Now what we've seen in Luke's gospel account uh, throughout the whole thing is we see Jesus, the king, acting kingly and giving us what I like to call little glimpses, sometimes big glimpses, that he's the king. He's the long-awaited Messiah. Messiah means king that they, they've been waiting for, who God had promised a long time ago in the Old Testament. And Jesus comes and He's the one and He shows Himself to be the one because He restores, He restores health. And He speaks the truth perfectly. And all this goes on and we've seen glimpse after glimpse, but there's still this desire. He's telling them, pray your kingdom come. And now we know at Christ's return, the kingdom will come to never be gone again. And it won't just be glimpses. It'll be fully realized and we'll see God's name hallowed like we wouldn't see it before. And you say, Pastor, help me with the practicality of this. Why do I pray your kingdom come? Maybe I should put it another way. What would cause me to do this other than Jesus says to The news, your life, your relationships, your hurts, your discouragements, your failures, your sin, your struggles, your letdowns, your brokenness, others' brokenness, people you care about who suffer. And on and on and on and on the list goes. Your doctor's appointments. Your children's doctor's appointments. Your mourning. Injustice. Against you or against others. What do we do? God, your kingdom come. It's interesting too. It's It's forceful. This is, this, is, this is command mode. God, your kingdom come. There's, there's desperation, please. And you know what? God doesn't feel bossed around when you say that. Because He will be maximizingly, to make up a word, glorified, and His name will be hallowed, and He's not bugged at you when you're saying that in, in, in an insistent way either. Because He wants to have His name hallowed. God, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Because he's glorified in that. This is super practical. Super practical. This is like the go-to prayer. God, I want my, your kingdom come. You have so many opportunities to pray this and so do I. Jesus knew what he was doing when he told us to pray like this. Sometimes what happens, the church loses sight of this, and sometimes we lose sight of this, and we, we, we don't talk like this, and, and we forget that there is there's a coming kingdom. And when we forget that there's a coming kingdom, bad things happen. And we think this is the kingdom in its ultimate sense, and, and we, we start acting in very confusing ways. 
and we don't have an explanation of how things are ever going to get better. Maybe things are only going to get better when we take things into our own hands. And you know what? The better that we make is not really ultimately better. We want to do our best with the here and now, and we want to honor Christ with the here and now, and love one another in the here and now, things we're supposed to do in the here and now, but it is always with, you know, that, that one eye open, looking heavenward, saying, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. There's relief. Makes me want to pray. Because it's just natural, it's just normal. Then let's move on. Then let's move on. Because in the kingdom, I will be able to speak clearly and I will be able to articulate myself. That was supposed to be funny, but it was not. But Let's move on. He says in verse 3, another striking feature. Uh, Give us each day our daily bread. Give us each day our daily bread. Pretty straightforward. I don't think we need to say a whole lot there. Provide for our needs, right? And, and, and God is the one who provides for everybody's needs. And believers are supposed to recognize it and not act like pagans who think somehow I have my needs met because I did it. And so we say, God, give us our provisions today. Give us our provisions today. Because apart from God providing... You can't do anything. I think about my little kids and, you know, you try to teach your little kids different things. You try to teach them a Christian worldview where, you know, God is the creator of all things. And then you have to realize that needs some explaining, you know. Because then you'll hear the kids talk, the little kids, and they'll say, you know, well, you know, God made our house. Well, no, that guy, you know, who needed a belt, who put in the toilet, um, that wasn't God. The plumber did that. The construction builders built our house. and We want them to understand that God is the giver of all good gifts. We want them to understand that, that God provides everything. But maybe He provides it because mom and dad, He provides a job for. So they can work and, and the builders build the house and they build the house because they're made in God's image and they are creative and we can do amazing things. God provided the house, yes, but God didn't have a hammer and nail. And so we have to labor at these things. Daily bread. We don't have a bread guy that shows up to our house. We don't, in my family, we don't go to the market every day and, and buy bread. Most of you don't either. I've been in some other countries where it was pretty much the way you do it. And you can actually, you know, they, they don't have a bazillion and one preservatives in their bread. And you actually have to go and you buy your bread every day. A little bit easier to understand. But we get the concept. God provides. And apart from God's provision, that bread that has a shelf life of a long time does you no good. If your body can't digest it. We get the idea. God's got to provide. God provide for us. We don't act like pagans who think we're authors of our own destinies. And, and even non-Christians should be able to see this. You can have all of the resources. 
But if your mouth doesn't work or your stomach doesn't work or your kidney doesn't work and on and on the list goes, you got nothing. God, take care of me today is the idea. This is easy to pray this way, right? It's just easy. This is super easy. There's some relief to this. I just need to see everyday things and say, God, thank you for these things. Take care of me. Take care of me. Let's move on to the next one. Forgive. Verse 4 says, and forgive us our sins. That is so easy. How about that? That's awesome. So, so what do I do? Um, God, forgive me of my sins. Well, that's, that's almost like too easy. Jesus said, this, this is just what you do. How convenient. That's encouraging. Just forgive us our sins. But now we're back to that. That's super easy for you and super easy for me. But what really causes us to want to say that is realizing that it really wasn't super easy. It wasn't super easy at all because the foundation for forgiveness is atonement. And apart from atonement, there is no forgiveness. I love Colossians chapter 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So here, for us, what is so easy, we just say, God, forgive us. Because something was done that wasn't so easy, that Christ gave himself up for us to atone for our sins. And oh, by the way, if I really think on that and meditate on that, prayer isn't a huge burden. It's not a big burden like, oh no, I got to ask for forgiveness again. If I'm finding Christ magnificent and wonderful to atone for my sins, I can say, God, forgive me. Oh, I want to say it. It's easy to say. I'm so glad it's easy to say. Because He made it easy. But it wasn't easy for Him. It's a little more complicated to understand when we read the next statement. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Given the parallel, what he means by indebted is sin. Sin indeed creates a debt for us. Wages of sin is death, even using debt kind of terminology, payment kind of terminology. And so we're indebted. We, we, we should die for our sins. But it's interesting that he puts such an emphasis there. It's troubling that he puts such an emphasis there. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, if you want to be a wooden literalist, I take the Bible literally in the sense I take it at face value, given context, given different genres, um, language, use of language, syntax, grammar, all that. In that sense, I take the Bible literally. It means what it says. But if you want to be a wooden literalist and, and make it mean something else and remove it from its context, you're going to have a pretty funky theology of salvation. Because you're going to conclude that if I forgive others, I do the right thing, then God will accept me. And now you have a salvation by work system. And now grace is not grace. Now we earn it. Now we'll never go to heaven and say, worthy is the Lamb and only the Lamb. Because we ourselves have earned it. So we don't take the Bible that way. We take it in context, in a greater context. And passages like this cause us to pause and go, hmm, what's this about? What does he mean? What's he getting at? And, and some have suggested, and I think we're on a better track now, and maybe your study Bible says this, maybe it doesn't. Well, this isn't talking about initial salvation, um, forgiveness. This is the ongoing as a Christian kind of thing. 
I think we're getting warmer. We're, 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 we're protecting the doctrine of salvation, which Jesus would want us to protect based upon other things he said. We're getting warmer, but it's still problematic that God is somehow, it, it's a reward. And as long as we, then he will. I'm still not comfortable with that. I wouldn't want to die on this hill because this is something that many people have written about and try to struggle with and deal with. I think what he's getting at we ask God for forgiveness. We forgive others. Both are vital. Both are essential. Oh, and let's realize this too. If I forgive you for your sins against me, I'm the kind of person that understands how forgiveness works with God. Put another way, in the negative. If you don't forgive other people for their sins against you, because they don't deserve to be forgiven. One thing we know is true about you. For sure. You don't understand forgiveness from God. Now I'm not scolding you. I'm not trying to say that you. you I'm not trying to do that. I'm just going to want to help you. If we understand how God forgives us. Let's put it in the positive. We will be forgiving people. It's a, it's a mark of Christians. Christians get forgiveness. God's kind of forgiveness, and so they do it themselves. Now, we're saying, uh, we, we certainly would ask for help with it, but think of it in these terms. Think of people who wrong you. Let's think of it, no, let's do it, let's do it a different way. There, there are people, everyone in this room has been wronged. There would be some in this room who've been wronged in more... Um, egregious, more severe, um, what we might say more devastating kinds of ways. You've been wronged. If you, if we were to listen to those people who are here today and, and, if, and if you explain to us how you were wronged, you can help us understand this kind of forgiveness. Because this kind of forgiveness, the vertical kind, is the most severest kind. Because we have committed spiritual treason against God. The Bible describes us as His enemies. Not worthy of forgiveness. And yet, based upon the atoning work of His Son, He freely gives forgiveness. He gives forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. So some of you here who have been on, on, the, on the horizontal level, who, who've been violated in, in, in very severe ways, maybe you get it better than the rest of us. And if you forgive that person, it shows that you understand that God has forgiven you. Greater offenses is what I'm getting at. Long way around, I know. Thanks for being patient. But to put it in the negative, and I'll just put it on myself, when I am at the place where I say things like, I cannot forgive that person. What they've done against me is just too, too it's, it's, it's unforgivable. 
you can know something about me and you need to help me. You need to love me enough to help me. You can know that I do not understand forgiveness from God. You can know that. Because this kind of offense on the horizontal doesn't even compare to the forgiveness on the vertical. Because we're talking about God. So you need to help me. I really think that's more the essence of what Jesus is getting at. God, forgive us our sins. Man, we can just say it so easily and it's awesome as we forgive others who sin against us because we understand what this forgiveness is about. So we speak in these terms. You know, one reason to recover this kind of praying too is because we forget that this, how, this is how the gospel works and we say things like, I just can't forgive that person and you say, you are totally not a Christian. Or maybe you are, you just don't get it. But the most basic thing about Christianity is that God forgives us and we're unforgivable when it comes to the crime we've committed. So it'd be good to recover this. God, forgive me as I forgive others. Or you might be, God, forgive me as I... I don't think I can say it. Well, we got some business to do. Because Christians of all people get this one. Christians of all people get this one. more to be said about that but let's let's move on to the next one where we read lead us not into temptation lead us not into temptation and we'll end on this one that's what he says in verse 4 it's part of our praying lead us not into temptation that's another puzzling one it's puzzling because Christians who know their Bibles know that James chapter 1 says God doesn't tempt 1 Corinthians 10.13 says we're, we're not tempted beyond our ability. The Sermon on the Mount version of this maybe helps us. In Matthew 6.13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or as the marginal note says, it could be translated, deliver us from the evil one. So God is not the tempter, but we live in a broken world and God is sovereignly working in our lives and God is our shepherd. He leads us and guides us and it seems what he's getting at is a statement of humility. God, keep me from being in a place where I'll sin. God, keep me from sin. Lead me not into into temptation. He's acknowledging that God is the one who leads. But don't lead me into temptation. It seems to be a statement of humility. It's not the, I'm a mature Christian and I'm strong and I can handle anything. God, Father, lead me not into into temptation. Protect me. I'm weak. I need your help. I'm not strong. I need your guidance. Somewhat helpful and enlightening, I think, is Jesus in the garden in Luke 22 where he says to his disciples one final time, pray that you would not be led into temptation. 
It's, it's real. It's, it's personal. It's passionate. It's not saying, well, we know the Bible says God doesn't tempt, and we know that the Bible says He won't let us be tempted beyond what we can handle, and so everything's just fine, and you know what? I just kind of kick back and float on the raft. I can handle anything. No, it's, God, please, please protect me from that. God, I am weak. God, I need you. I need you to lead me and guide me and, and, and help seems to be more the idea that makes me want to pray too not just because oh man i got to have the discipline of prayer and spiritual disciplines of a godly man say pray well that's good and important this is good and important too because it's a reminder that i'm weak and i'm not above it and i'm not beyond it and now i want to introduce one more factor to you before we get done did you notice the corporate emphasis of the prayer Lead us not into temptation. And that's not the only place. But there's a corporate emphasis on the prayer that he's giving here. The instruction in prayer. I think it applies to the individual. I've been preaching that way pretty much all morning. But we shouldn't overlook the fact that there's a corporate emphasis. As your people. The band of disciples. Bigger group of disciples. Let's apply it to Omaha Bible Church. God, lead us not into temptation. These guys could have been like, hey, we're disciples, man. You should see the stuff we did over in Capernaum. Satan schmaten. Think of Peter with a knife. No way will we compromise, Lord. We're powerful. We've got the apostolic anointing. And they did. And he says, you pray that you're not led into temptation. Well, think about us. I could give you a list of criticisms of Omaha Bible Church. I could give you a list that I literally have of things that hopefully we can work on in the days ahead that we are working on. But you know what? There is something about Omaha Bible Church that I have a lot of confidence in. I love it that we try not to assume the gospel. We're not that kind of church. I love it that we... we Work hard to not be ashamed of the gospel. We're not that kind of church. I love it that we're committed to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the authority of the scriptures alone. We affirm the solas of the Reformation. I like it that we want to be a strong church and a bold church. And, you know, I like to say we don't have an identity crisis. And we're not doing what the one author says, looking for the next wave that God sends so we can be like surfers and catch the next new wave. Read trend. You know what? We're not that kind of church. I'm so glad for those things. But on another level, sounds like a recipe for disaster. I'm so thankful so many of you are that kind of Christian. We need, we need to have convictions and be bold and have them be biblical convictions. Pray that God wouldn't lead us into temptation. God, we're a weak church. We're a feeble church. We're one controversy, one temptation away from being useless. And if you don't think that's true, Read some history about great Christian leaders, 
great Christian, Christian institutions. If you want to pray for Omaha Bible Church, there's a good one. God, lead us not into temptation. Lest we be like Peter, who needed to pray that he wouldn't be led into temptation. And the next thing you know, he's denying Jesus. We can be denying Jesus tomorrow. Super practical, super helpful prayer. Don't leave feeling guilty, though there's a great place for guilt. It's just not, not today. I hope you go feeling relief. Maybe motivation, wanting to observe Jesus in the gospel accounts. Wanting to observe Jesus in Hebrews chapter 7. And feeling a sense of relief and, and inspiration and motivation. Prayer is simple. Prayer is not for the mystic. Prayer is not for the creative. Prayer is saying to God basic things like these things. And that's encouraging and that's freeing. And I want you to be encouraged and freed to say to God in light of what Jesus has said to us. Father, thank you so much for our time this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all in all, who is our life, who is everything to us. Thank you that while we fumble around and stumble around, you have given us your word that is sure. You've given us your spirit who leads us and guides us. Thank you that we also have the confidence that he's returning. And so we say, may your kingdom come. May your kingdom come. Lord, make your name hallowed among us and in our midst and in our lives and in the way we think and in the life of this church. Help us to not think of you as some sort of small deity, that you are the great God of creation, the great God of redemption. Encourage your people with these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.